Hello, and welcome to the Her Head in Films podcast. I'm your host. My name is Caitlin. On this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about the films that I watch. They tend to be art house, world cinema. On today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the 1989 really classic film in many ways, Dead Poets Society by Peter Weir. It's a very meaningful film in my own life, and I wanted to revisit it. Um, It's one that I watched as a teenager, so I hope that you will stick around and listen to the full episode as I tell you about Dead Poets Society and give you behind-the-scenes information and also share my personal thoughts and feelings about the film as well as critiques of the movie that have come out in the past few years. So I will be digging into all of that for you. If you're new to the podcast and you don't know who I am, I'm a writer, a dreamer, I love literature, art, poetry, I'm someone who craves knowledge about the world, Um, I live in a rural area and I created this podcast as a way to talk about the films that I watch. Cinema is something that I have only been really passionate about since maybe 2011. So um, that doesn't feel like a long time ago, but it's been seven years now and um, cinema has just grown as a huge passion in my life. and it sort of um, consumed me at times and that's why I created this podcast I just wanted to share all my feelings um, with those of you who would like to listen to them if you knew the podcast and you don't understand what the title refers to it's one that I created it comes from an email that I sent a friend a few years ago in that email I was talking about how obsessed I was with watching films and I wrote, my head isn't in the clouds, my head is in films. And so that's where her head in films comes from. This podcast does have a Patreon where you can help to financially support the work that I'm doing. I try to spotlight underappreciated films at times, obscure films, films by women. Um, if you if you like the work I do, cons- consider if it's possible supporting the podcast on Patreon. I have extras and rewards on there for you. Um, You can get access to bonus episodes. Um, All the money goes into sustaining the podcast. Um, At one level, you can get a shout-out in each episode. So I just want to give my shout-out to Olivia, Carolyn, Feminist Overlord, Michelle, Jesse, Polina, and Lindsay. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your support. I appreciate all of you who listen. If financially supporting the podcast is not possible, please consider reviewing it on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you listen to it and there is a way to review it. I would really appreciate that. Um, It helps it get better um, placement in the directory so that people can discover it and, and listen to it. You could share episodes on social media or just, you know, tell people, you know, if you have cinephile friends and you think they might like the podcast. And finally, you know, interact with me. I'm, I'm on Facebook, Her Head in Films. Um, you know, just never underestimate what a nice word can do. Because I send these episodes out there into the ether and I never know 
what they do or who they affect or if they have any kind of impact at all so if you'd just like to send me a nice message that's nice too and in the description of every episode I have all my social media links where I'm at on Tumblr, Twitter, Facebook so there's all kinds of ways that you can interact with me if you would like to. So I'm going to talk about Dead Poets Society but first I want to talk about something a little bit serious something that I am struggling to articulate and to put into words as some of you know as many of you know we're in this moment with sexual harassment and sexual violence with the me too campaign that has now led to times up which is a legal defense fund that is going to help women in in the working class industries when they need legal help when they go through sexual harassment you know when all of this started you know a few months ago with the Harvey Weinstein story I voiced my concern. I voiced that I was worried that it would not lead to systemic or institutional change. That does not mean I was ever against Me Too or that I don't believe in it. I passionately believe in, in what Me Too is doing. I was just worried. You know, I was worried that it would not lead to the kind of change that we needed. But with the times up, that really, I think, is a great thing. I'm glad to see that. I think what we are seeing right now, and I'm talking specifically about the Aziz Ansari piece that was on that website called Babe, where a woman, they they said her name was Grace, obviously it's like a pseudonym, where she talked about an encounter, a date that she went on with Aziz Ansari, and how um, it was very coercive, how in many ways nonverbal she was trying to send the message that she was not consenting to the encounter and that she was not interested in having sex with him but he was persistent about it and that things happened that she did not really want to happen we are seeing a huge outcry about this article I'm really disturbed by the reactions that I'm seeing of people who think that what happened to her was okay that she should not have spoken out. Me Too is about breaking silence. Me Too, and if we're going to change things, that means we hear all women's stories. There is a spectrum of harm, as Ashley Ford on Twitter has said, the spectrum of harm, which I think is a really great phrase for this. There are there is a spectrum. Just because someone is not thrown to the ground and violently raped does not mean what she went through does not matter and that it shouldn't be talked about. There are other things that can happen, like coercive tactics, like men being persistent, like men basically not caring what women want to do and just going ahead and doing it anyway and women are always having to negotiate their encounters with men they are trying to get out of every encounter with a man alive <laughs> or without really bad bodily harm or violence or anything else happening so they may send they may not think that they can say i want to leave or no or this or that and women react differently to things we we have a we all have different reactions 
when we are in certain situations that we find violating or we find difficult, we all react in different ways. So to see this woman, Grace, being victim blamed, to see the shaming of her, to see the attacks against her, to see the de the delegitimizing of her harm and her experience is profoundly troubling to me because I actually think that her experience is much more representative of what many women go through. We don't all encounter a Harvey Weinstein in our everyday lives, but we do encounter men that can be coercive, that can be persistent, who cannot respect our boundaries and can put us in difficult situations that we struggle to negotiate and that we feel harmed by. And this is rape culture and this is patriarchy. This is men thinking that women are not human beings that deserve respect and deserve their own agency. And I'm just really disturbed by the reactions and I'm disturbed by the victim blaming that's happening. And you know what this did? Do you, I don't think people realize that the outcry about this and the attacks against her, it's actually really dangerous because it has just told every woman that had an experience like Grace had to shut up and to keep taking it. That it was just a bad date and it's your fault and you're to blame. So you just silenced all those women that had similar experiences to Grace and who don't even know how to talk about it, don't even know how to like put it into words what happened to them, but they know that it didn't feel right and it didn't feel good. And that is a lot of women, a lot of women who have had those experiences. So actually, women are being silenced. So I, I don't know, I don't have anything original to add to the conversation, but I will not be silent about it. And I will not, um, I will not allow anyone to keep me from giving my opinion about it. And you can think what you want to think about it. You can have your own opinions about grace and about that encounter, but all women need to be part of this conversation. All different experiences, all different kinds of forms of violence, assault, coercion, all of it needs to be included. All of it. You don't get to pick and choose. So that's all I wanted to say. I'm upset about it. I'm consumed by it. I think about it constantly, what's happening. And I just, I wish I could go more into it, but I want to talk about Dead Poets Society. So this is a really important film in my life. I watched it when I was a teenager. I watched it in an English class in high school. And I've just been thinking more about it in my life. I'm 28 years old, so I'm about a decade out of high school. 2017 was actually 10 years since I graduated. And I'm someone who's really nostalgic. I'm someone who thinks about the past a lot. And I think about my childhood a lot. And I didn't have sort of your normal childhood. And um, I went through a lot of pain. I went through just a lot of difficult things as a teenager. But this film was important to me. And I still remember when I watched it. And 
I just wanted to revisit it. You know, it's winter. I'm recording this like in the middle of January. Um, it's actually been snowing outside. Um, it, this is like your perfect sort of winter film. And um, I don't know. I've just been thinking a lot about my childhood, thinking a lot about the past too much. Um, it hurts. Those memories hurt for me. And because um, I've talked about it before, I talk about it a lot on the podcast. But when I was 16 years old, my father died. It was not expected, it was a sudden death. I was very close to him. I considered him not just my father, but my best friend. And we were profoundly close. And I adored him. And losing him was devastating. And I've never recovered from it. It's been 12 years at this point. I mean, this year will be 12 years. It happened in 2006 when I was 16, as I say. But I was a junior in high school at the time. And uh, it was inconceivable for him to die. It, it was the unimaginable. And then it happened and I was just uh, shattered in every possible way. And I've never recovered from it. But I do think about the years before his death. And I also am really sad for what his death took away from me which was not just, you know, a life with him and, you know, having him as my father, but, you know, what the trauma of that loss did to me and how it prevented me from living in a way, in the way that I wanted to live, what it did to my body, what it did to my mind, the depression, the anxiety that happened, the health issues that I still deal with because of what it did to my body. You know, grief can devastate your body, can affect your heart, it can affect a lot of things like it has for me. So, I deal with a lot. Even today, you know, I guess some people can put it in a drawer and say, oh, it happened 12 years ago. But I think when it's so atomic in a way, and it completely um, blasts your life apart, and, and I think when you are still dealing with the fallout, and the aftermath of it and so it's a constant reminder I don't think that you can easily just put it away and so I do think about my childhood a lot and I am very nostalgic and sometimes I think that I was frozen at age 16 I was sort of like fossilized that there is this contradiction about me that I'm very old in some ways because I lost my father. Within a three-year period, I lost my father, my grandmother, my uncle. By the time I was 20, these three people were gone. I'd gone to three funerals in three years. It was just devastating, all this death that happened. And so in many ways, I feel old. My body feels old. My soul feels old. And then there's this other part of me that feels like emotionally or something or maybe psychologically, like frozen at the age of 16. Like I'm very nostalgic and I'll, I listen to pop music a lot. And there's this part of me that feels like a teenager inside. And I don't know how to really make sense of that contradiction about myself, but it's there. So I wanted to talk about this film and revisit it. I did something similar with an episode I did in 2017 
about the Secret Garden, Agnieszka Holland's, I think it was 1993 film, The Secret Garden. And I talked about in that episode how I think it's really valuable to revisit films from your childhood and to think about how those films shaped you possibly and um, and to look at them as an adult and to think about um, just to think about the impact these films can have on us not just as children but as we get older so this film Dead Poet Society it is a classic film it's a cult film it has a huge following so many people love this film I would call it beloved you know I would really call it a beloved film and if you're listening and you're a new listener and you you know you just found it because you were searching for Dead Poet Society you know it it's so many of us love it and we have this very tender place and this soft place in us for this film um it was directed by peter weir it was released in 1989 it's set at um a fictional um school uh it's supposed to be set in vermont it's that's not where it was filmed it's it's set at wilton academy uh, in the year of 1959 at, at this boy's sort of prep school this film not only was really um, a big box office success um, it also won some awards uh, Tom Shulman was the screenwriter and he won the Academy Award for best screenplay Robin Williams was nominated for best actor at the Oscars Peter Weir was also nominated for best director he did not win Robin didn't win either the film did win a BAFTA for best film as well so before I get into the film or my thoughts and feelings about the film I did want to share some some research that I did and so some like behind the scenes making of sort of information because I think it's really interesting and I had never really thought about going deeply into the film and about the filming of it and and the set and things like that but I decided I wanted to do some research and learn more about it and it was really fascinating and so I just want to share with you some of what I found so on the Turner Classic Movies website there's an article about Dead Poets Society and in the article it tells us that screenwriter Tom Shulman was actually inspired by some of his own teachers he heard a lecture by Broadway director Harold Clerman and he found that really inspiring it was filmed in Delaware as I said earlier it was filmed at a school called St. Andrews and um, that was like a really big deal when the film crew and everything was in Delaware um, in the original screenplay and I didn't know this and just to be upfront there are spoilers in this review I'm gonna be talking about the film I'm really gonna talk about it as though you have seen it because it's such a ubiquitous film it's it's I would imagine that a lot of, of people in school saw this film and I'm sure there were people who didn't get what all the fuss was about and then there were people like me who were just you know amazed by this film um, so in the original screenplay Professor Keating is actually dying of cancer and I could not believe this this shocked me that this was in the original screenplay but Peter Weir decided that it just did not work and so he had that taken out um, in this article we're also told that the scenes were shot in chronological order 
because they wanted to show the evolution of the relationship between Professor Keating, who Robin Williams plays, and his students. So, and then I also read this thing um, on mental flaws. They have an article like 15 facts about Dead Poet Society. And um, I'll put all the links for this into the description. But it is based on, as I said, Tom Shulman's own experiences. But he went to a prep school in Nashville, Tennessee called Montgomery Bell Academy. And so some of the inspiration came from that too. According to Mental Floss, the studio that made the film actually considered turning the film into a musical. So we could have had Dead Poet Society, Dead Poet Society the musical, which is really strange to think about because this is such a serious film. This is such a drama. Um, Peter Weir was not the first director considered for this film. At first, um, there was it was going to be directed by Jeff Canoe, who directed a film called Revenge of the Nerds. He was set to direct, but he and Robin on set did not get along, and Robin Williams just basically refused to do it. Eventually, Peter Weir was brought in. And according to Mental Floss, Robin Williams improvised a lot of the film as well, that there are quite a few scenes he improvised, which doesn't surprise me. There are quite a few scenes that are very in line with his kind of humor and with the different impressions that he would do and things like that. Because um, he did impressions of Marlon Brando and John Wayne doing Shakespeare, for example. And then I found an interview that Josh Charles did. He plays Knox Overstreet. And he talked a little bit about what it was like filming the film. And he said that Peter Weir liked to play music. Um, on the set and that at the end the big scene where they get on their desks he said that Peter Weir um, was actually playing music during that scene and that the music itself was really inspiring especially to Josh Charles and that he said it was it was sort of a the moment when he realized the power of music and how it can evoke really strong emotions and Josh Charles said this about the film. I guess he was asked, you know, why do you think this film has such staying power and that it just lives on for so, uh, for uh, that it has lived on for so long? I mean, it's almost 30 years old. Because um, I was born in 1989, you know, I'm 28. So this film is as old as I am. And it still is so important to people. And Josh Charles said this, quote, what resonates with people is what Keating stood for. When it comes to the end, not thinking that you hadn't really lived, it speaks to people trying to inspire them, themselves, inspire students, unquote. And I thought he really got to the heart of, I think, why this film endures is because it does ask questions of us about the meaning of our lives and what gives that meaning to our lives. Finally, for the behind-the-scenes stuff, I watched a half-hour documentary that was filmed around 1999, I would say, or 2000. It, one of the actors mentions that it's been 10 years since the film. And um, it interviews many of the actors who were in the film. And so I just want to share a little bit from this interview. It was really extraordinary to watch it and um, really fascinating. Ethan Hawke is in it. Robert Sean Leonard is in it, a lot of the different actors. 
But Ethan Hawke says that Peter Weir taught him, quote, what cinema could be, what was possible. So it sounds like for Ethan Hawke, this film was really formative for him as a young actor and really cemented what he wanted to do and who he wanted to be. Weir um, was very insistent about them understanding the world of the 1950s and so he made mixtapes of 50, 50s music for the actors. He tried to immerse them in films and music of the 50s. He also had them write poetry which is really fitting you know because it's about being in a literature class. Before filming began he had the actors show up in Vermont two weeks before the film started to shoot and so they went to Delaware and they had this two weeks where they rehearsed and he really wanted the boys to spend a lot of time together and for there to be that friendship and that rapport between them. He even wanted them to connect back to the 50s. He even wanted them when they showered to only use soap as shampoo. He said something like that's what people did in the 1950s like they didn't have I guess shampoo they just used soap body soap. I thought that was an interesting detail as well. And it's very interesting to me how Weir incorporated the actors into the filming. You know so many times we hear about actors, not actors but directors rather, how they can be sort of tyrannical on set. You know that they they don't see the actors as important you know to the process of making the film. They have their vision, they want the actors to do it. Peter Weir sounded very different to me and I'll give you an example. Um, Ethan Hawke and Robert Sean Leonard in the interview, they were talking about the desk set scene which many of you, if you've, if you've seen the film you know, you know it's, it's Todd Anderson, uh, Ethan Hawke's character. It's, it's his birthday and his family gave him this stupid desk set that like no kid would ever want and um, Neil played by Robert Sean Leonard shows up and and he throws it um they throw it off the roof of of the building that they're in and it wasn't really like that in the script um ethan raised the issue to peter that uh, the way it was originally written uh, i guess todd goes through sort of this speech and it's very self-pitying and ethan told peter you know i don't think that a guy my age you know a teenager would would talk like this in front of another guy or that he would be this self-pitying. And so we're told Hulk and Robert Sean Leonard to think about what else they could do in the scene. And so Robert Sean Leonard came up with throwing the desk set off the roof and we're put that in the scene. And so at times in some of these scenes, and I'll talk about more scenes as I'm talking about the film, um, he incorporated what the actors thought and felt and it was a collaboration at times and I thought that was really fascinating and I thought that was a really interesting way um, for for him to direct the film really you don't often you know hear about that with directors they can be pretty controlling um, you know from from things that you hear I do want to talk about critiques of the film but I think I'd rather talk about the film first and then go into those critiques because um, it has gotten some negative reviews in the last few years. 
but even at the time in 1989 there were some negative reviews most notably by Roger Ebert and I usually agree with Roger Ebert's um, film reviews I tend to but I have disagreed with him at times if any of you have listened to my episode about Abbas Kiarostami's The Taste of Cherry that is another film that Roger Ebert really did not like and that I love and so I want to engage with his critiques and I want to I want to engage thoughtfully with criticisms of the film because it's one thing to watch it when you're 15 and it's another thing to watch it when you're 28 and to really think about it but I also want to counter some of those those criticisms and and give my point of view so I want to give a brief rundown of some of the themes that I see in the film and then I'll go deeper into them. Um, some of the things that I want to talk about in this review about the film is the role of teachers, how important they are, the importance of finding yourself when you are young, the dangers of conformity, how this film is really asking us to to be nonconformists, right? And I think that's important. The importance of poetry, literature, the humanities in our lives. I want to talk a, a little bit about Robin Williams's death in 2014 and how difficult that was for me and how difficult that moment was. I want to and I want to talk about Todd Anderson, which is Ethan Hawke's character who is someone that I really connected to and that I related to. So let me start by saying that I'm really interested in how films can affect us at certain points in our lives and how we can never really untangle a film from those memories. So for us, the f we cannot look at the film objectively. We may try, we may want to, but it's just not possible because we have this particular relationship to it. My relationship with Dead Poets Society is going to be completely different from your relationship to Dead Poets Society. Whoever's listening, if you've seen the film, if you love the film, the film has a different life inside of you than it does inside of me. And that fascinates me about all art, is that personal reaction that personal experience of the art and that each and every one of us brings something different we absolutely bring different experiences emotions memories associations to a film and that actually just fascinates me to no end and what i'm always trying to do in this podcast is to explore that i'm trying to explore the intersection between really the human soul and art and what it means when your life collides with art and how does that art shift you you know in an almost Teutonic way um, with that clash between you and this work of art I still remember seeing this film and that's why I can't talk about the film without talking about me as a teenager and and my childhood I still remember I don't know if I I don't know what year of high school I was in it had to probably be freshman or or um, sophomore year of high school I had to be 14 or 15 and I just still remember being in the English class I remember the teacher I remember the room 
I remember the television up on the wall and it was not the flat screen you know this was probably 2005 or 2006 well no it had to be before my dad died so it was 2004 or 2005 probably and you know how when you were in school like you know the TV sometimes like the TV was on a roller cart or something and then sometimes it was up on the wall and I think this one was up on the wall and I remember being in my desk and I remember watching this film and I remember how it moved me how it electrified me um, how its passion and its belief in literature resonated with me you know when I was a teenager and even now you know I was very bookish I was um, very precocious as a child um, I wish I knew how to explain myself as, as a kid I was I was dreamy I was serious I loved books from probably the age of four or five whenever I started learning to read I just devoured books um, I loved libraries and bookstores and I used to go to the Goodwill a lot because my family didn't have a lot of money I didn't really get to buy new books or anything and I would go to the Goodwill and I would buy books there usually the paperbacks were like 50 cent and the hardbacks were a little bit more and I amassed a lot of books that way and um you know I just I still have a lot of fond memories I remember the library I went to when I was a kid and I remember the high school library and I can just still smell the books and feel the excitement and the love that I felt for those spaces I was I was so sensitive and I loved writing too. I started to write probably around the age of 10 or 11. I would write poetry. I would write in my journal. Um, I write in my diary, which I still do. I still write in a journal. And um, I felt like this literary person, right? You know, I mean, in, in my own head, you know. I, and by this age, you know, by the time I was a teenager, about 15, I loved Virginia Woolf. I had discovered Sylvia Plath. Um, yeah, but my love of books was first. You know, I always thought of myself as a reader more than a writer. And even today, I struggle with writing. I don't feel like much of a writer at all. Um, but books have just always been this really big passion in my life. And I did love Walt Whitman. Walt Whitman is huge in this movie, right? Henry David Thoreau. I didn't know as much about him. I still haven't read much of his work. There was like this recent biography about Thoreau that's getting all kinds of attention. It's like this very rich, detailed, complex, multi-dimensional view of him. People have just been raving about it. And uh, I would maybe like to read it, you know because his ideas were so important and he does seem like a fascinating person but Walt Whitman I absolutely adored from the beginning I've always loved Song of Myself I've always loved the sensuality and the sensuousness of his verse and sort of that new American vernacular that he created through his poetry um, and so I love that he's part of the film 
as well. So literature was something I loved. I used to always look for like anthologies, you know, of, of like, you know, the classic, uh, classic poetry or, you know, classic short stories and things like that. And, um, I loved old books and I loved poetry and <clears throat> I was someone who even now, you know, the way I describe myself was interested in knowledge and I craved knowledge and I craved knowing about other people's lives and what other people went through and I was very curious about the world and and um, I would watch PBS. I mean, I was like 10, like watching PBS. I still remember it. And I would watch like all the Jane Austen adaptations. And I, I loved watching those. And um, I was just, I was really like naive and sensitive and dreamy. And I was really shy too. And But for me, I, I'm not putting it into words. For me, I never felt real. I've never felt real. And I don't know how to explain that. I've never felt in my body, I guess. I've always felt so much more of my mind. I've always felt like a person who was always living so much more in her head and in her mind. And I always had this very rich inner life, this inner world. And I always felt like I couldn't be understood by other people, that I couldn't connect with other people because I was so within myself and within my head and my brain and my mind. And I always felt like I really only existed either when I was writing or when I was reading. You know, that the, the life I lived through books was more real and satisfying and rich than the real life that I lived. I, I could never get used to reality. I could never feel at home in reality or at home in the world. Or I never felt real. I never, I never felt visible. I never felt seen. I never felt valued in my real everyday life. And so I lived this life of the mind. I lived this life in books and words and language. And that was what was real to me. And that was that was better than anything that real life could give me. Was what these books gave me. What these books made me feel. And so Dead Poet Society is my first memory of encountering a film that represented that. That represented that love and passion and connection to literature and I was very lonely I've always lived a very lonely life um, I grew up in a small town I still live in a rural area and I've always struggled to find other people who loved books the way I did who valued literature art poetry cinema all the things that I'm passionate about who also valued this sort of life of the mind that I lived and that I still live and it's always been a struggle for me to connect to other people. So in my loneliness, that is why Dead Poets Society resonated so much with me. Um, it just, it electrified me. It was like this awakening. It was like this revelation 
when I watched the film that like, oh, <laughs> there's other people who understand that literature is life, that words are life, that it's more than just, you know, markings on a page or something. This is this is worth living for. This is life saving. This is life affirming, you know, these these books. And so that was really important to me. Another thing about this film that resonated with me was the role of of teachers. It, it may it makes you think about the teachers in your life and the importance of teachers in our lives. And I certainly had that. I had quite a few teachers who were really, really important in my life. The first was a male teacher when I was in eighth grade. I had written some kind of poem. I think we kept a journal um, in that grade. And I had written this poem or something and I still remember, like, he he went through and he read our journals and then he would sit each of us down and talk to us about the journal or talk to us about what we had written. And I remember him him saying to me, you know, you're a really great writer. You're. It was the first time that anyone had said that to me. Like, I mean, I, my parents had always been really supportive. But this was the first time that anyone had said, oh, you're a really good writer. And I remember that year, we also had to do this project at the end of the year where we wrote this essay or, or we did like a research project. And I chose to write about Emily, Emily Dickinson because I loved her. I still love her and she fascinates me to no end. And I think her poetry is just, you know, gorgeous. And I remember... Um, in the comments about the the essay, he had written something like, and I, I remember he said, you have the gift, and he put the gift like in quotation marks, um, and I just was stunned by this, absolutely stunned, um, that somebody would say that about my writing, that I had a gift. Um, and it, it made me start to think, well, maybe I am a writer. It was the first time I had really labeled myself that way or had thought of myself in that way. Um, it had not occurred to me up to that point. So he was a really important teacher. Um, another teacher I had um, in a book she had written, um, it was Anne Lamott's writing book called Bird by Bird which is a really good writing book, by the way, if you're looking for one. I like Anne Lamott. She had said she was one of my high school English teachers, and she said to me something like, what did she say? She said something like, I think you have the, the passion and the determination or the talent to become a really great writer or a really good writer. She had written that in the book. I don't have the book anymore because I recently lost my house like a f like two years ago I had to move well really three it happened in 2015 I had to leave my house and we moved to another state and I lost 99% of my possessions <laughs> and most of the hundreds and hundreds of books I had accumulated throughout my life so that's where the sadness comes to is you know remembering that house as well but I didn't grab that book. I could only grab so many. 
I remember her writing that and that was really amazing you know and I had this really great teacher uh, she was the film appreciation teacher that I had in high school and I talked about this in some other episodes that I took this really important film appreciation course in high school and that's how I started to see cinema as an art form as not just a form of entertainment but as something that was art and I had this experience of cinema as art and we watched some amazing films in that class from Singing in the Rain to Some Like It Hot to The Wizard of Oz and some Charlie Chaplin stuff and um, uh, Casablanca which I absolutely adore Um, what else did we see we watched a lot of stuff in that class from what I can remember and it was also the first class in high school where a teacher um, taught a class like it was um, like a college course give me a minute I'm just getting comfortable (laughs) I do these I just do these episodes in my bed so I'm just getting comfortable here so that I can go down memory lane but um that was such a great class I still think about it and just long to have it back again I long to be in, in that um she held the class in like the theater the drama theater where they did plays and there was like a screen that came down and so we got to sit in this darkened theater and and watch these films and it's still like some of the best memories of my life really but she did the class almost like a college course and she was just an amazing teacher and she wanted us to think critically and she reminds me of John Keating in a lot of ways um, because of her insistence on us thinking critically and us thinking in a complex way you know when we did tests for her it wasn't multiple choice it was open-ended and you had to justify it and you had to write essays and you had to think on this very um, on this deeper level really and so she was such a such a formative teacher for me and I remember like um, she left she went to another school I didn't have a class with her when she left but I heard that when she left that all the students said like oh captain my captain to her which is from Dead Poets Society I don't know if they stood up on their desks or anything but they were doing this tribute to her and saying oh captain my captain because she meant so much to them and she was just such a formative teacher and a revelatory teacher for a lot of people so when I look back on my life it is populated and punctuated really by these extraordinary teachers that I had teachers that believed in me teachers that teachers that saw something in me teachers that pushed their students to not just accept what they were told you know what I mean but to think for themselves and to think in a deeper way and I am forever indebted to those teachers and sometimes you can't see something in yourself 
until someone else sees it and points it out to you and in a way they give you a gift you know they give you that gift of seeing yourself in a way that you couldn't see and then possibilities are opened up in that when someone says you're a good writer you have a talent you have a gift but of course that comes with a burden what do you do with it what have I done with it I mean I've done nothing with it I'm not some published writer I'm nobody and so I've always struggled too to feel like I had some kind of potential when I was younger and that I haven't really fulfilled it I didn't go to an MFA program I didn't study creative writing or any kind of writing when I went into college I did study literature and English but I, I didn't pursue it I haven't done anything with it and in some ways I do feel like a failure I did try for a writing scholarship at a college but I didn't get it and that was really crushing for me when I did not get the writing scholarship I remember you know doing it and sending it off and it was it was just a big blow to my confidence I think and I don't know if I've ever fully come back from it of that crushing feeling you know that I wasn't good enough and that I'm still not good enough so but on to the film <laughs> I've gone on some tangents about my life but this film brings all of that up it brings up you know my life in high school and and it makes me think about a lot of things and I was very emotional rewatching this film I watched it on Netflix where it I don't know how long it will be or how long Netflix will stream it but that is how I watched it and I watched it tonight uh, I'm doing the episode right after I usually do these episodes late at night <laughs> So I talk, I'll talk about the film now. So we have a few main characters. We have Todd Anderson, who's played by Ethan Hawke. He's shy. He sort of lives in his brother's shadow. His older brother had also gone to Welton Academy. Again, set in 1959 in Vermont, but it was filmed in Delaware. Um, we have Neil Perry, played by Robert Sean Leonard. Um, he's probably best known for being on House. That was a big show. But he was also in this really cute film called Swing Kids, which nobody talks about. He was in it with Christian Bell. It's a really, it's set during the Second World War. It's actually a good film. And Neil Perry, his main conflict is his issues with his father, who is very controlling and domineering. Then we have Charlie Dalton, played by Gail Hansen. He's the rebellious one of the bunch. We have Knox Overstreet, played by Josh Charles, better known for his role on um, The Good Wife. He has this sort of ongoing romance with a young girl. And of course we have John Keating, played by Robin Williams. He's a new unconventional teacher at Welton Academy. And um, yeah, but he is this um, catalyst for so much that happens to these boys you know that he comes in and he's very much a disruptor of their lives he's a disruptor at the Academy itself which is so traditional um, this is a very masculine film obviously and I may talk about gender near the end um, I don't want to focus on it right now um, 
as I said, it's based in Welton, this fictional Welton Academy, which the boys call Helton. <laughs> it's a very stiff, traditional environment. All the boys dress the same. They have the same hair. Um, so this is a place of extreme conformity and adult control. Um, and in this environment, Keating enters and he disrupts it and he stands out because of his insistence on seeing these young boys, seeing his students not as things to control or dominate, but as actual people, as thinking, feeling people with things to contribute. And he sees that in them and he treats them in that way. So the first, and I, I'm going to talk about the film really in scenes because this film is known so much for certain scenes and certain quotations. And so first we have the first scene with Keating, with Professor Keating. And this was a profoundly um, moving scene for me when I first saw I still remember, like I said, it's so vivid in my mind watching this film in high school. I mean, it just, I'm like back in that room I can see the desks. I can I can just feel myself back there. And I remember this scene and how much it affected me and it still affects me. So he takes them outside the room to look at these photos um that are up of alumni of boys who had gone to the school before. Boys who are most likely dead. It looks like the turn of the 20th century maybe like the 19 early 1900s possibly the late 1800s or maybe you know maybe later but it's hard to tell but these the guys in these photos are probably dead and so mortality and death hangs over this first scene with Keating and within this context of thinking about mortality Keating really urges them to live to make something of their lives, to not just survive in the world, to not just conform, but to actually live and to contribute something. And so it shows these black and white old photographs. And on top of that, you can hear Robin Williams as Keating saying this really important quote that is it. It's really central to the film quote. They're not that different from you, are they? Same haircuts full of hormones just like you, invincible just like you feel. The world is their oyster. They believe they're destined for great things just like many of you. Their eyes are full of hope just like you. Did they wait until it was too late to make from their lives even one iota of what they were capable? Because you see, gentlemen, these boys are now fertilizing daffodils. But if you listen real close, you can hear them whisper their legacy to you. Go on, lean in, listen, you hear it? Carpe, hear it? Carpe, carpe diem. Seize the day, boys. Make your lives extraordinary. Unquote. And I don't care what anybody thinks of this film or this scene, but to me, as a teenager, this was profound. This was a revelation to me. This spoke to me 
you know, as my 13, 14, 15-year-old self. And it also speaks to me now that I'm a bit older, now that I'm a decade removed. Well, almost a decade removed from my teen years fully. It takes on a new significance for me. You know, that sense that life is fleeting, that so much is behind you while what is in front of you feels like it's dwindling. That's a very real thing for me, and it's something that I think about. And when I was watching this scene, it made me think about the ending of a Mary Oliver poem. And that poem is called The Summer Day. And some of you probably know this poem. And um, it's interesting that I mention Mary Oliver because I think she's really relevant to what I'm going to talk about later with the critiques of this film, which really, for me, comes down to a difference in how we look at literature or how we look at poetry in our lives, that there is a more academic view of literature and poetry, and there is a more personal view of literature and poetry. And Mary Oliver has often been laughed at, you know, not literally, but she's often been dismissed by critics and academics because she speaks in a more plain, accessible language and really talks about everyday things. But I really love all Mary Oliver's poetry. And um, so here is the quote from The Summer Day that I want to share. Quote, doesn't everything die at last? and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Unquote. With you, what is it you plan to do with your one child, with your one wild and precious life? Carpe diem, seize the boy day, seize the day boys, Make your lives extraordinary. So as I saw that scene, I was reminded of the Mary Oliver poem. But I think that scene is asking something from all of us, not just those teenage boys and not just our teenage selves. But what are you going to do with your life? And that is a monumental question. That is what all of us think about when we're teenagers, you know, and we all have these hopes and we all feel this possibility for our lives. And then, of course, I'm 10 years down the road from it and I see that everything's not going the way I thought it would go. And I haven't had the opportunities or the experiences that I thought I would. What have I done with my life? Um, I don't know. And it's something I struggle with, of what do I do with my life. So what I love about Keating in this scene and throughout the film is that he is really trying to engage not just their minds, these boys, but he wants to engage their souls and their, and their hearts. So the next scene I want to talk about that's really central, and, and it's central really to the critiques as well, is the J. Evans Pritchard scene. And for me, it sets up this conflict um, 
between these two ways of looking at literature, of literature and poetry. And, you know, maybe it's wrong to set them up into these two, you know, warring camps or this dichotomy, but it is there. And it's sort of this, the intellectual versus the, I guess, emotional or the passionate, the academic versus the passionate. And so Keating has one of the students read the introduction to a poetry anthology, a poetry textbook that they're going to be reading in the class. It's written by this J. Evans Pritchard, who is not a real person. Um, and he tells the boys to rip the introduction from the book itself, rip the pages out. And so this scene is really, let me adjust my position. So this scene is really an attack on orthodoxy and tradition. And I think it's really against the academic view of literature and poetry, this very academic sort of dry, almost boring, um, um, analysis, uh, emphasis on dissection and, um, and close reading. You know, all of us remember English class in high school where you had to dissect these scenes. You had to look at symbols. You had to look at metaphors. You had to really, um, engage with literature in a way that I do not find that compelling or that interesting personally. Um, and I'm sure there are people who are listening to this episode that are going to disagree with me, that have a much more intellectual view of literature, and that's fine. I'm not attacking your view, I'm just presenting my view that for me, that's not enough and that doesn't work for me. And I'm going to talk about that more. I will. I will expand on it. I really think that Keating disagrees with this reduction of poetry to simply metaphor, meter, this thing to be dissected. I think that's what he disagrees with. I don't think he's against it completely. Obviously, when we read a book or we read a poem, absolutely we should engage with it on an intellectual level or with our minds if that's what we'd like to do. Um, but that's not all a poem is. You know, it's not just symbols and metaphors and meter and, you know, I find Keating's defiance really exhilarating and exciting that he's saying, you know, let's take poetry out of the ivory tower. Let's take poetry out of the hands of the elites and let's approach it from a different way. At the same time, you know, he, he preaches critical thinking, right? Think for yourselves, think for yourselves. But in this scene, he doesn't even let them read the full introduction. He doesn't really let them make up their own minds about how they feel about this more intellectual or more conventional way of reading poetry. He just automatically dismisses it. And they go along with it. So you can already see how they are impressionable and they are really susceptible to his influence. So even there, I think there's a little bit of a conflict in the film and some of the critiques have pointed this out that he is preaching critical thinking. He is preaching think for yourself, but then everything he tells them to do, that's what they do. And they sort of parrot or mimic him at times. 
I'm not saying that's not true or that that's not happening. It is to a certain extent, but these are teenage boys. And so I think they are definitely exhilarated by being able to tear those pages out. And I think they are awakened to the possibility of poetry and literature as being something more than just things to memorize or things to dissect, but that they could see how literature and poetry can relate to their everyday lives. And Keating, in this very famous quote, quote, this is a battle, a war, and the casualties could be your hearts and souls. Armies of academics going forward measuring poetry. No, we'll not have that here. No more J. Mr. No more Mr. J. Evans Pritchard. Now in my class, you will learn to think for yourselves again. You will learn to savor words and language, no matter what anybody tells you. Words and ideas can change the world, unquote. Ugh, I still love that. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. If you love writing and you love books, you believe that. How else can you love these things? You think that they have a power. And I do think that words and ideas can change the world. Me Too, the Me Too campaign, that is words and ideas changing the world. And that's also why I think Keating's message of thinking for yourself, of resisting conformity, is really important in the age of Trump. In the age of fake news, of rising right-wing extremism, um, you know, Facebook has really gained a huge amount of power. I've been thinking about it a lot lately. Two billion people on Facebook and two billion people on one platform that can be easily influenced by whatever that platform does. That kind of scares me, you know? You see what happened in the election with the spreading of lies, conspiracies, fake news. So for me, the Dead Poets Society message of thinking critically, thinking for yourself, um, not conforming, you know, um, I think that's important. <laughs> I think those are profoundly resonant um, themes to think about in our day and age that we have got and, and the importance really of the humanities and of literature is to be able to show people how you think, how you look at an argument, how you construct an argument, how you how language is used. I mean, if you think about it with the fake news, this is language. This is about language. Social media, yes, it's image, but it is also language. Think about what tweets can do. Think about what Facebook posts can do. The way news can spread, the way lies and conspiracies can spread, that is the power of language. He didn't say words and ideas can change the world for the better. Sometimes they can change the world for the worse. But that means we need to engage even more deeply with words and with language, right? Um, that makes it even more important. And I really love this quote as well in this scene. It still makes me cry. It made me cry when I was watching it. Quote, we don't read and write poetry because it's cute. We read and write poetry because we are members of the human race. And the human race is filled with passion. 
medicine, law, business, engineering. These are noble pursuits and necessary to sustain life. But poetry, beauty, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. Unquote. And that, in a nutshell, is the way I see literature and poetry and other forms of art is this affirmation of life, this thing that keeps us alive, that makes life worth living, that is what we look for beyond the basic necessities. The basic necessities for us are not enough. You have water, you have food, you have shelter. You need something more than that. You have a soul, you have an essence, you I mean, I'm not religious. I don't believe these things are tangible. These are the words I use to describe intangible things about the human about human beings that we need connection and we need literature and art because it connects us with something deeper and more transcendent. This is actually, at Welton Academy, a dangerous message. And Keating is seen, I think, as a dangerous person because of it. Other teachers and administrators at the Academy tell him that he's setting the boys up for failure. He's filling their minds with these wild dreams. He's raising their expectations. And I was thinking a lot about this. Um, and I think about high school a lot, way more than I should. I actually deactivated my Facebook and I don't have any interaction with people that I went to school with. I really, I don't have any friends from that. I've moved out of state, so I don't have any connection to the people that I went to school with. I, I just, I don't, but when I was on Facebook, I actually found it really painful to see them like in your mind you remember people from high school in a certain way you have this image of them in your head and they will always live that way they will always be fossilized in your memories you know younger and and just different looking and and full of possibilities and dreams and so it was really painful for me to see them getting married living their mundane lives becoming ordinary in a way you know like it was hard for me to see that I don't know why you know I just think of us when we were young when we had these dreams I wanted their dreams to come true and I wanted my dreams to come true and I think I still hold on to those dreams and you know I remember some of those people I went to high school with as so funny and so charismatic and um, I wonder what happened to that part of them, you know, of who they were when they were 15 or 16. You know, some of the people that I knew in high school, they acted in plays. They were in theater, and I saw them in these plays, and they were so alive on stage. They were like Neil at the end of the film when he's doing A Midsummer Night's Dream. And I remember when I saw them on stage, I remember thinking at the time, that they could really be something you know that wow like they have something special about them you know they could be actors but then I later saw that none of them pursued acting and I was almost mad at them I almost was like blaming them or like I can't explain this I'm trying to 
it's like I was mad at them for not pursuing their dreams, for not going for it, for settling, I guess. But of course, I've done the same exact thing. You know, I'm a failure too. <laughs> what have I accomplished? But I guess I wanted one of us to be someone. I wanted one of us to have our dreams come true, right? If they're ordinary, then so am I. You know, so you really... You're, what I was struggling with was that, was my own mediocrity, you know, my own failure. Um, we're all ordinary, and that's the hard thing to accept, is that you didn't make your life extraordinary. You know, maybe you took your one wild and precious life, and you didn't do a whole lot with it. And you never became what you thought you would become, because Dead Poets Society ends... When they're still kids and their whole lives are ahead of them and we don't know what happened to Charlie or Todd or any of them or Knox, you know, what did they go on to do? What do any of us really go on to do? What impact do any of us really have? You know, we're all just pretty ordinary, you know, just going about our lives. But as much as it hurts to think of myself as a failure because I'm not extraordinary, which if you think about it is a ridiculous burden to place on yourself. And it's a ridiculous burden to place on other people to expect them to have extraordinary lives when you certainly don't yourself. But I am thankful for those years in high school. I'm, I'm thankful for that short little interval when I did think that my life could become something special. That moment in my life, it didn't last very long. It was before my father died, obviously, when I felt some kind of dreams or some kind of possibilities for myself. So the Dead Poets Society itself was a group that Keating was in when he was in school. And it's a group that, you know, Neil and Todd and Knox and Charlie and all the guys, um, they re resurrected and create their own Dead Poet Society. They gather in a cave. They read poetry. Um, they really, I think, do this and they read poetry as something that is outside the everyday, something that is special. And I think that's what literature and poetry is at times. It it's special it's it is extraordinary and it can within your mundane life it can give you access or some kind of connection to something more extraordinary you know when i read a great book by virginia wolf that completely takes me into an extraordinary place into a place of beauty and intensity and a place of deeper feeling a place of deeper knowledge I feel like I'm in connection with something transcendent and I feel like she is articulating things that I feel but I, that I could never put into words. And so I think that what he's trying to do is just encourage them to live more deeply and um, to live more fully, to feel alive and connected to something. And then there's another important scene where they all stand on their desks, uh, not on their desk, but they stand on one desk. It's when Keating is trying to tell them to look at the world in a different way. And of course it, it 
it presages and pre and foreshadows the final scene where they get on their desks but he wants them to look at things in a different way and he talks about how they should really strive to find their own voices because the longer it takes for them to find that voice the harder it can be because the pressure to conform in that world and in this world can be crushing i think the world is always demanding our conformity it demands that we play by certain rules that we compromise ourselves especially under capitalism and i think people who refuse to play by those rules who refuse to conform are often criticized for it um and it made me really think about you know how do we hold on to ourselves in a world that is constantly trying to crush us personally i try to hold on to the child inside of me or the teenage girl the 16 year old girl inside of me i try to hold on to to that way of looking at the world to that sensitivity and that tenderness and that openness but often in this world people who try to do that who try to stay soft and tender we're often crushed and devastated you know and we're often accused of not growing up it's it's seen as a weak a weakness to try and not let the world kill your spirit it's seen as a weakness to resist calcification and hardening as a person it's seen as a weakness to be soft and to try to hold on to that part of yourself and that's unfortunate I wish it wasn't but that's why I love watching this film because the that film it really reconnects me to that part of myself and um to that part of myself that I try to hold on to really I want to talk a moment about Todd Anderson because he is a character that I related so much to because he's really painfully shy and he seems to struggle with anxiety and just give me one moment He seems to have really intense anxiety and I was exactly like him in high school and middle school and elementary school. People actually thought I was mute. I had so much difficulty talking in front of class. I had trouble talking to people. I never had friends. <laughs> I was never someone that had a lot of friends. I was never close to anyone and so there's this powerful scene where Keating makes Todd do a poem like in front of the class and he had not prepared anything and so he's really making it up in the moment and um, Keating starts the scene by showing that he really understands Todd that um, he can see that Todd believes that everything inside himself is worthless and embarrassing to quote um, and I felt that way too as a teen. I feel that way still, <laughs> that everything inside of me is worthless. But Keating really sees value in Todd. And I wonder if that could be the first time that Todd has really heard anyone tell him that. Anyone who has seen his potential or his worth, 
that can be such a powerful thing when someone affirms you, I think. And Keating's really trying to push Todd and open him up. And I think this scene is in many ways an awakening for Todd, a, a moment of, of transformation and of change. You know, he has to do the yawp and he has to create this poem on the spot. And you can really feel him connecting to what's inside him. And you can see the vulnerability it takes for him to share his emotions and his thoughts in front of the class. And it's interesting because Hulk, Ethan Hulk, who plays Todd, he said that doing this scene with Robin was really revelatory to him in real life as it was filmed. And that he sort of felt even more passion for film. And, you know, Todd really, he moves the class and he moves Keating in that moment. So we come to Neil's suicide and Todd's grief and Keating leaving. Um, I, I know some people don't think that the suicide is maybe really believable. But I, I think it is. You know, is it a bit melodramatic? You know, the scene where he's standing at the window and he puts the crown on. And, you know, of course, it's sort of weighted with this symbolism. And But I think that it is believable. You know, Neil has been under his father's thumb. He faces the prospect of military school, of losing his friends, losing theater. At that age, those things really affect you intensely. And you do feel things in a more raw and immediate way. And he felt like he was going to lose everything. And um, he he feels very trapped. He feels like now that this world has been open to him of theater and acting, he can't pursue it. He can't have it. It's like so tantalizing. It's like it's dangling right in front of him. And then it's about to be taken away. Um... And I thought this was important, too, because it's the boys, it's their first encounter with death. And they are really left reeling by, reeling by it. They are reeling. They are devastated. You know, the scene of Todd in the snow, and he's breaking down, and he almost can't speak or put words together. And the boys gather around him, and they're holding him, and... There's such a tenderness to it, and, and it's interesting to note um, in that interview that I talked about, Ethan Hawke and all of that, that scene where Todd is in the snow was not in the screenplay. It was supposed to be filmed like in a bathroom, but on the day that they were going to film the scene, there was this really beautiful um, snowfall in Delaware, and Peter Weir wanted to try and do the scene outside. And he said, we only get one shot at it because the snow's coming down. You know, once you make the tracks in the snow, we won't be able to cover them up for whatever reason. That's what they said. So Ethan Hawke <laughs> and the boys go and do this scene in the snow. And it's one take. They only did it in one take. And it's so, it's stunning. You know, the, the tranquility, the serenity of the snow falling down. And Todd himself notes, oh, it's so beautiful. And then he just starts to break down in the snow. I still remember that scene. You know, it was it was such a powerful scene to me when I saw the film the first time. And so now when you watch it, you'll know that that, that was in one take. You know, this really emotional scene. And 
Ethan Hawke was able to do that in one take, and I think that's pretty impressive, really. And as we all know, Keating becomes the scapegoat for Neil's death. He gets blamed for it, he gets forced out of the school, and we have that final scene where um, he comes back and he's leaving again and the boys get up on their desks and um, and it's still it just lights a fire inside me even seeing it you know more than a decade later I mean I think I've seen Dead Poets Society here and there you know since I saw it in high school but I don't know if I've really sat down and watched it beginning to end like it's been on TV and I'll catch it but to watch it beginning to end again this scene just still lights a fire in me and I love that it's Todd who starts it because Todd in the beginning is so shy and so within himself and this is a huge gesture on his part that he really wants to communicate I think his gratitude to Professor Keating and um so then they all get on the desks, or most of them get on the desks. It's just this really grand gesture on their part to say, you changed our lives. And it's also interesting to note that the actor who plays Cameron, let me find it, Dylan Cussman, he played Richard Cameron, and he's sort of like the villain in the film. You know, he outs the Dead Poets Society, and which is part of the reason why Keating gets blamed. And um, so Richard Cameron goes into his audition, not Richard Cameron, Dylan Cussman, sorry. The actor Dylan Cussman goes in and he's auditioning to play Cameron. And originally the screenplay had all the students stand on their desks. But Cussman said that he didn't think his character would stand on his desk. I think Peter Weir asked him, he was like, you know, is there anything about the screenplay that you would change? And he says that he would change that, that he doesn't think that Cameron would stand on the desk and so Weir put that in the script and Cameron does not stand on his desk at the end and so again it's this really great example of Peter Weir um, Peter Weir collaborating with the actors and incorporating what they think I do want to note something about gender in the film and it was much more apparent to me watching it as I'm older and I'm much more of a feminist you know at 28 than I was probably at 14 or 15 though I always have been a feminist in many ways it's a bit shocking the extent to which women are absent from the film this is a very masculine film it's it's dominated by men because it's at a boys prep school which I get um, I've always wondered if there could ever be sort of a female version of this film I mean, I know there's Mona Lisa Smile, which I've never actually watched beginning to end, but I don't think Mona Lisa Smile has that same stature or that same, like, beloved quality um, that Dead Poets Society has. Women, for the most part in the film, are present in two capacities. One is the romantic plot that Knox Overstreet has, and I would have to say I was a little bit more taken aback by that plot than I was before at how insistent Knox is, you know, that he's really pursuing this young girl and there are times when she indicates that she's not interested and he keeps pursuing her. 
because she has a boyfriend and he just keeps on and keeps on and I think that is really in line with how a lot of films represent relationships between men and women or boys and girls is that even when women try to rebuff advances even when they try to get men to stop pursuing them or they indicate that they're not interested men keep going and going and going um so that is something that i noticed about it and the second capacity is really pornographic if you remember charlie has like this picture of um i think he has like a like a nude picture of a woman that he shows and he brings some girls to the cave but they're certainly not given any kind of um complexity or personalities or anything like that it is interesting to know that peter weir directed picnic at hanging rock which is a really beautiful film it's a dreamy film and he made that in 1975 that's when it was released and it's based on a novel which i've read as well about and it takes place at an all-girls school at the turn of the 20th century and several girls go missing during a picnic and they're never found and it's set in australia at the turn of the 20th century but the girls in picnic at hanging rock are nothing like the boys in dead poets society they are not um they're not as real to us the the women in picnic at hanging rock are they're much more distant mysterious they're defined by their beauty they're really ethereal in some ways you don't really get a sense of who these girls are a sense of their personalities a sense of their inner life the way that you do in dead poet society which is really focused on the boys and focused on their lives at this prep school focused on their struggles and the things that they're going through whether it's todd you know with his anxiety and his shyness or and you know living in his brother's shadow or neil with his acting and his father or even Knox Overstreet with the romance plot line. So it's interesting to note the differences in the films. I like Picnic at Hanging Rock because there is this profound mystery about it and it's it's a very beautiful film to watch. Um but of course, you know, a film about women would be much more focused on aesthetics and beauty while a film about boys is much more about their lives and what they feel and what they think and so you can see the difference in gender there finally I want to linger a moment on some critiques of the film and as I said before I think the the crux of these critiques is a fundamental difference in opinion about the meaning of literature in our lives there are those that think about literature in a much more ac academic way and then there are those who don't, who think of it more uh, in a pleasure way. Um, and and there's probably something in between or, or whatever. But for me, I think there is a bit of a split there. You know, that some people read for pleasure. They read because they enjoy it, because it nourishes them emotionally. And then other people read because they want to dissect the text and they want to look at all kinds of different things within the text and it's more like critical theory and literary theory and things like that and I think there is a bit of a you know a split between those two camps so 
a few years ago in 2014, there was an article in The Atlantic. It was written by Kevin J.H. Detmar. And his core argument is that the film represents studying literature in a misleading way. And he thinks the film is anti-intellectual and that it focuses too much on passion and heart instead of the mind. So he, he doesn't like the way his profession, or, or I guess he said that when he saw it, he was getting his PhD in English. So this is someone with a PhD in English. <laughs> And so um, he felt like the way that studying literature was represented was misleading. He criticizes Keating's interpretation of Robert Frost's The Road Not Taken. He thinks that he cherry picks things from Whitman, from Thoreau, from Robert Frost, and that he just uh, uses those quotes, you know, but he doesn't understand um, the actual meaning of those things. I mean, I would counter it, and I'll I'll put the full I'll put the link in the description. Um, he also sees Keating as very narcissistic. That's a big part of it as well, is that Keating is just interested in himself and in promoting literature just as a way for us to understand ourselves, instead of um, something that. Um, illuminates other lives to us and I would counter that I don't think the film is trying to be an accurate portrayal of studying literature um, and I would also argue that not everyone who loves literature wants to be a professor of literature or to get their PhD or be in academia or write term papers I think Dead Poets Society emphasizes the passion and pleasure of literature, poetry, words, and language. I went to college. I have a bachelor's in English and Women's and Gender Studies, but I did not like academia. I Studying literature in college was not what I expected it to be. It was so divorced from the reasons that I read and the reasons that I love literature and love books that I found it very alienating and disappointing. I didn't like literary theory. I didn't like theory in general. I didn't like academia. I did not like the way books got reduced to, well, let's dissect this scene and let's do this and let's look at symbols and let's look at this. And that didn't interest me personally. It really didn't. I'm not against that way of looking at literature, but how is that relevant to my everyday life? Seriously. I'm a working class person, just living my life. I'm not in academia. I'm not teaching classes. I'm not writing papers about the books that I read. How is that relevant to people's everyday lived reality? to know all kinds of critical theory and literary theory. And I'm sure there are people listening right now who are like vehemently disagreeing with me. And I get that, but I was always very alienated and turned off by academic language. 
it is extremely elitist. It is extremely inaccessible to the common person. It just is. You know, when I tried to read literary theory, I didn't know what I was reading. You know, I could not comprehend it. And maybe that's me. You know, that's on me. That's my deficiency. That's my failure. It was something I struggled with with women's and gender studies too. The theory was hard for me because the language in which the theory was written was just so inaccessible and so just I didn't even understand what I was reading. It was like in another language even though it was in English. That didn't nourish me. <laughs> you know, I read Virginia Woolf and I feel I read to the lighthouse last year and I loved it. That nourished me. That was beautiful. There were sentences and passages in that book that absolutely just amazed me. I, I don't I don't want to look at that book through critical theory or literary theory personally. I don't want to do that. I just want to read the book and I want to enjoy it and I want to get something out of it that is my own and what is wrong with that exactly you know who's that hurting for me to read literature for pleasure you know and it doesn't mean that I'm narcissistic I don't go to literature to just have myself reflected I absolutely read literature to learn about other people's lives and to inhabit somebody else's psychology and life I think most people who read for pleasure would tell you that, that they are looking for different experiences. They are looking at different lives. I think that's what made me who I was. It's what made me curious. It's what made me empathetic was that when I started reading at five, you know, or four or whenever I learned to read, I wanted to read about other lives. You know, I'm the same way with my cinema. I love watching films. I just watched a film set in Croatia. You know, I watch films around the world. I just, I've watched film, just in the last week, I watched a film set in Russia, one set in Croatia. You know, I love Japanese cinema. I love Iranian cinema. I love experiencing and seeing the world through cinema and through films. Just because someone likes to read for pleasure, or reads because it saves their lives, because it makes them feel more alive, just because they don't read in an academic or a really highly intellectual way, does not make them a narcissist. It does not mean that they're not looking for other experiences through literature. So on to Roger Ebert. He reviewed it in 1989, and he gave it two stars, which is really low. He felt the film was emotionally manipulative. Quote, a collection of pious platitudes masquerading as a courageous stand in favor of something, doing your own thing, I think. Unquote. And then another one, quote, I was so moved I wanted to throw up. Unquote. That's what he said about the ending. He thinks that the writers in the film are, quote, simply plundered for slogans to extort the students toward more personal freedom, unquote. And I can see what he means there, that there is a focus on the personal and on the individual, absolutely. And that is a big thing in America and in, here in the United States, is this focus on the individual, this focus on the self. 
and that can be really harmful in some ways. But I think, again, you have to remember the context of the film, that it's about teenagers. It's about teenage boys. And so Keating is trying to connect with them. He's trying to help them see literature as something that is more than the J. Evans Pritchard dry, boring introduction. That it can that Shakespeare and Thoreau and Whitman, of course, no women writers <laughs> that he quoted to them. Um, that literature can be relevant to their lived reality, to their everyday lives. That it can teach them things, show them things, make them feel things, help them live more fully, deeply, and intensely. And so, yeah, I guess he does cherry-pick quotes, but aren't they gorgeous quotes? You know, the Whitman quote about the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. Or Thoreau, I went to the woods because I wanted to live deliberately or whatever. These are beautiful quotes. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. They're stunning. I mean, <laughs> the quotes that the film did cherry-pick, they stay with you and they affect you and they resonate with you. He thinks that the film panders. He says it's an attempt to pander to an adolescent audience. So his main critique is that it is emotionally manipulative. Which I, you know, I understand. I get what he's saying, but I don't agree with it. <laughs> just like I didn't agree with what he said about Taste of Cherry. So I just wanted to talk about a few of those um, critiques. Um... You know, one came out in 1989, one came out just four years ago. And um, I, I just, I wanted to see, I just wanted to talk about how other people see the film. And, you know, not everybody else is like, you know, in love with the film the way I am. Um, but I think it's important when you rewatch a film when you're older to maybe engage with some of those critiques and think about the film in a more rounded way. But like I said at the beginning, you can never untangle a film from what it makes you feel, you know, and the way that it's tied to certain memories in your life. So finally, I want to end with Robin Williams. Uh, Robin Williams died August 11th, 2014 from suicide he killed himself but he was actually in the throes at the time of Lewy body dementia and he was his mind was not great and he was in this state of dementia and so while he did commit suicide he did it under really trying circumstances he was 63 years old I still remember the news I was eating dinner the news broke in the plate was on my lap and the announcer said that Robin Williams had died and I just broke out sobbing. Robin Williams was central to my childhood. You know, all the films that he made from Jumanji to Mrs. Doubtfire to um, Hell Flubber. I think I saw Flubber. <laughs> um, you know, everything that he did. Um, he was in so many great films, you know. The Birdcage, that was one that I really grew up on. Awakenings, I loved Awakenings. Um, and Dead Poets Society, obviously. So, um, 
he was someone that I just I couldn't imagine the world without Robin Williams it was that shattering to me it was I don't know like of all the deaths I think we all have a celebrity death that just annihilates us that we cannot deal with you know for some people recently it's been Leonard Cohen or it's been David Bowie or it's been Prince or you know whoever for me it was Robin Williams and I really count that day as the true death of my childhood in a lot of ways like I was like 25 years old but that is when I finally realized that it was over that all of it was gone it, it felt like the nail in the coffin of my childhood and I still cry it took me a really long long time to watch a Robin Williams film I would say over a year at least the the first time I saw the the Robin again I was at a pizza place that had like a TV and it was showing something and it had one of his movies on I think it was Jumanji actually and that was the first time I was able to watch a film with him in it and I couldn't watch Dead Poets Society for a long time either it would be on TV but I would never watch it and really watching it for this episode was really um, probably the first time since his death that I've watched it beginning to end so we lost someone just so monumental so important so beautiful you know I just I loved him and I loved him in his dramatic roles I loved him in Dead Poets Society I love that he showed that side of himself I think it was a beautiful side of him and he had such depth and he had such substance and richness about him and he did the same thing in Goodwill Hunting like there's something so deep about him especially in Dead Poets Society I don't know he, he just had this gravitas he had this when he did serious roles he really just it felt so intimate to me and sometimes he could be seem so vulnerable and so open and and um so warm like you, you just wanted to know him you, you just wanted to be in his company and so um authentic I think when he was serious a great depth and substance always came through especially in Dead Poets Society I think so it's just not the same you know now that he's gone and yeah it's really hard it's really hard I really mourn him and grieve him and he was just a major loss for me I'll just be honest well I'm gonna stop here I've talked about everything I've talked about this film my childhood criticisms of the film Robin Williams which is still hard for me to talk about and so I'll just stop here Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now. Until next time, keep watching great films.